You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Criminals get the news like everyone else, and online crime continues to follow current events. It's up, it's down, it's up again. Forget it, it's TrickBot. A cyber incident affects computer maker Compal. Zoom settles an FTC complaint. Price check on the criminal markets. Ben Yellen on a Canadian shopping mall's collection of over 5 million shoppers' images. Our guest is Ben Brook from Transcend with best practices in privacy and data protections. And spare a thought for a veteran tomorrow. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. It should come as no surprise, but it remains worth noting that criminal fish bait and pretext for online scams closely track current events. The Wall Street Journal, having talked to a range of security companies, reports that U.S. election-themed spam remains high. It's likely to remain high for the next couple of months. And Tech Republic, citing Trustwave researchers' scanning of dark web markets, writes that COVID-19 is also a hot brand in the criminal world. Phony COVID cures, counterfeit travel documents, and scam-called boiler room services are all being pushed vigorously. The COVID stuff began to circulate early. Trustwave told Tech Republic they were surprised by how quickly criminals saw opportunity in widespread suffering and moved to monetize the main chance COVID-19 presented them. None of the approaches they've been taking are particularly novel, but they've been effective nonetheless. A large number of domains were registered with COVID-themed names. These are useful for waterholing or as destinations for fishing links. There have been many cases in many countries of campaigns designed to collect fraudulent claims on government disaster relief programs. Fishbait has been devised to inveigle employees trying to adjust to new work arrangements into opening malicious attachments or following equally malicious links. And finally, of course, are traditional scams. Quack medicines, bogus treatments, and the whole familiar soft array of hooked-up medical charlatanism. So where some people see suffering and ask, how can I help, and others who don't quite go so far as, how can I protect myself, still others ask, how can I monetize this? The people in the third category regard the first two classes as their prey. Prominent among the criminal activity that's continued through the pandemic, of course, is ransomware. A study released this morning by Zscaler finds an interesting wrinkle in the ransomware landscape, They're observing a marked increase in malicious SSL traffic, which suggests 
that criminals are finding this form of encryption attractive as a way of avoiding inspection and detection. It's not a foolproof way of evading defenses, but there may be some relaxed vigilance with respect to SSL. It's worth noting that SSL is often used loosely to both the deprecated SSL, that is, Secure Sockets Layer, and its successor, TLS, Transport Layer Security. In any case, SSL, TLS, and the things that mark them online, like the HTTPS prefix and the comforting padlock, aren't sure guarantees that there's no badness in the traffic. TrickBot continues to seem able to take a punch. Intel 471 today outlined how the gang behind TrickBot has managed to recover, shift, and work around repeated government and industry disruption of its infrastructure. The anti-TrickBot campaign began in earnest on September 22nd, when U.S. Cyber Command is generally believed to have begun interrupting the bot's ability to reach their command and control servers. There was a continued back and forth until the beginning of November, and by the end of last week, TrickBot activity proper had dropped to negligible levels. The operators had, in the meantime, shifted to Emotet and other tools. As Intel 471 put it, between October 28, 2020 and November 6, 2020, we have not seen any new TrickBot infection campaigns in our monitoring nor in open-source reporting. We observe the number of active and working TrickBot control servers being reduced over time, and we were unable to identify any working TrickBot control servers as of November 6, end quote. But in a sign of how resilient this sort of criminal enterprise can be, that inactivity lasted about three days. Quote, on November 9, 2020, we did see a new version of TrickBot that was distributed via a spam campaign. End quote. So, back to the grind for those who would take out TrickBot once and for all. Good hunting. Compal, a Taiwan-based manufacturer that's the world's second-largest laptop maker, is said to have sustained a ransomware attack over the weekend. ZDNet, which sources the news about ransomware to media in Taiwan, also reports that a Compal executive denied any ransomware attack, but did acknowledge an unspecified hacking incident, apparently confined to business networks. Compal Deputy Managing Director King Zhang Lu told news outlets that the company is not being blackmailed by hackers as it is rumored by the outside world. Apple, Acer, Lenovo, Dell, Toshiba, HP, and Fujitsu are among Compal's customers. The company also makes a large range of peripherals. The company is returning to normal operations. Zoom has settled a U.S. Federal Trade Commission complaint in which the FTC alleged that the online meeting platform had engaged in a series of deceptive and unfair practices that undermined the security of its users. TechCrunch says that the complaint turned in part on suggestions that Zoom's services were in fact more secure, more robustly encrypted than in fact they were. The settlement requires Zoom to implement a robust information security program to settle allegations that the video conferencing provider engaged in a series of deceptive and unfair practices that undermined the security of its users. The criminal market has its ups and downs. InfoSecurity magazine reports that prices of a batch of RDP credentials belonging to 7,500 educational institutions have dropped in two Russophone criminal markets. Digital Shadows confirmed to the publication that the price fell last week from 25 bitcoins, roughly $387,000, to 10 bitcoins, about $155,000. Cheaper, but still pricey. 
For 155 grand, you could buy a decent little bungalow in Florida or a Polestar 1 hybrid sports coupe. But some people think they'd rather spend their jack on, you know, remote desktop protocol credentials for school networks. Sad. And finally, we'll be taking tomorrow off as we observe Veterans Day. It's sobering to recall that November 11th was chosen for this day in remembrance to mark the end of the First World War, and that no veterans of that war remain with us. Other generations are passing. So spare a thought for the veterans tomorrow and spend some time with any you know, young or old. We will. The Cyberwire will be back as usual on Thursday. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Ben Brook is co-founder and CEO at data privacy infrastructure company Transcend. He joins us with thoughts on best practices in dealing with new privacy and data protections. Recently, there were two major privacy laws passed. There was GDPR and CCPA. And these are some of the first laws to encode what we call data rights. And you can think of data rights as the first time that users really have any degree of control over the personal data that companies collect about them. Whereas before, privacy laws were all about just, you know, writing policies and informing users. Now users have actual controls in their hands that they can use. And so companies are actually scrambling to adopt and companies are actually scrambling to 
comply with these new incoming requests coming from end users. So when somebody says, delete my data, it's a very tall task for a company to go to its hundreds of data systems and vendors and actually execute that erasure process. What are your recommendations for, for organizations who are looking to get a handle on this? I mean, what, what's the best way for them to, to get started? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few key principles that companies can adopt right now. And one of those is, is just adopting a philosophy of alignment over antagonism between these two departments, the legal and the engineering department. So something that, that we see that actually works very well is just to set up a working group between these two uh, functions and sort of have them meet regularly to hash out these differences because inevitably they're going to come up repeatedly. And having that alignment is key. Another one is to actually think more about the user experience rather than compliance. And this is really interesting because once you start actually taking privacy from a UX perspective, you actually start figuring out how to simplify uh, a lot of the things that the regulations say. And if you think of the core principle of these regulations, it's really about respecting users, right? So rather than trying to like go through an itemized list of compliance requirements, it's often a lot simpler to think of it in the perspective of, would my users be mad if we did this? Or like, how do we give them the best uh, privacy controls that we can? And so, yeah, user experience uh, as a priority over compliance, I think is really helpful. And then lastly, really pushing to achieve technical scale over manual workflows. So companies really need to think about getting it to a place where they have set it and forget it automation, where um, it's, it's a secure and it's a system agnostic infrastructure that can be connected once to wherever that personal data lives and then allow for automatic fulfillment of these, of these privacy requests. And once you have that, everything sort of makes sense again and you're no longer sort of like running in this hamster wheel of continuously trying to like chase down systems and put some unique workflow to each one. So just doing those are really actually simple ways of making this an effort that is sane and actually fosters a better sort of collaborative environment around privacy. That's Ben Brook from Transcend. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. Uh, You and I talk a lot about uh, the collection of people's images with or without their consent over on the Caveat Podcast. You know, privacy issues are something we talk about regularly. Uh, We've got a story here from Yahoo Finance. It's titled Cadillac Fairview. That's a, a mall, not a car. Uh, I was so disappointed when I found that out. <laughs> right. They collected 5 million shoppers' images without their consent. What's going on here, Ben? So this happened in Canada. Uh, there are 12 shopping malls where they had this pilot program 
where they were going to take uh, images of shoppers, and it ended up being 5 million, apparently to analyze the age and gender of the shoppers for their own advertising purposes, to kind hmm. of see uh, who was there during what time periods, uh, etc. It was basically right. market research. Uh, they said they were not doing it to identify individuals. Now, Canada has a, uh, or at least the provinces of Canada have what are called privacy commissioners. Um, we have that in some states here, or equivalents of that, um, but they seem pretty robust in Canada. Uh, hmm. And they are pushing back against what happened at these malls. The malls are saying that patrons had fair notice because there were decals on the shopping mall entry doors referring to a privacy policy. Okay. I don't know about you. I have never read a decal uh, on a mall, uh, on on the entry to a mall. Uh, yeah. I'd assume that if I did read it, it would say something like, you know, no yelling and screaming after 8 p.m. And, you know, things right. that are not related to we're taking real time uh, photos of you, uh, you know, five million of you as you as you walk through our malls. Yeah. Um, so what the commit the privacy commissioner said in a release is that shoppers had no reason to expect that their image was being collected uh, by an inconspicuous camera, nor that it would be used with facial recognition technology for analysis. And the big problem here is meaningful consent, especially in their view, considering how sensitive this data is. It's biometric data, so you can find out a lot of personal information about somebody. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting story. Um, I have to say I'm not uh, generally on the beat of what happens at malls in Canada, but certainly uh, <laughs> a story that's up our alley. Well, I, I guess I have a, a few questions about this. I mean, first of all, just in the, the pure gathering of images, I mean, how is this different from gathering up uh, just run-of-the-mill security footage? You know, that's it. You got video cameras all over the mall that are always rolling, and that's being recorded and stored for a certain amount of time. Uh, we are. We all seem to be. Uh, I don't know. At, at peace with that. So, I think that's a good point. The one thing that I think the privacy commissioners tried to get across here is that these are more secretive and inconspicuous. So they're in digital information kiosks. People probably don't expect that those are going to exist at a mall, whereas they do expect that there are going to be, uh, you know, closed caption. Security cameras, not closed yeah. caption, closed circuit, closed circuit. security cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think that's potentially one difference. But yeah, I mean, it is a very public place. It's a place where you probably don't have much of a reasonable expectation of privacy, no matter what you're doing. Because right. you should know that if the camera isn't catching you, there are generally a lot of people there who can see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that kind of cuts against the outrage that one would have about this story, that it's not yeah. like they're using this technology outside people's houses. It is a mall, uh, and you are choosing to go there. I think if the mall made it clear uh, and you know had warnings that are, were a little more accessible to their shoppers, then you know maybe the, commission, the privacy commissioners in Canada wouldn't have had such a problem. Right. I, I'm envisioning something like, you know, how some malls will have uh, interactive maps of the mall where you can walk up and, you know, say, oh, I'm shy. I want to find all the stores that have shoes. And yeah. you click a Ooh, button. Sunglasses hot. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But while you're facing that sign, I suppose there's a camera in the sign that is then taking this very clear, front on, well lit 
photograph of you. Smile, and if you you're on camera. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't know that's happening, uh, that could be disconcerting. I will say, you know, back in a previous life when I was working in the broadcast industry, if we were shooting at a place like a mall, um, we would put up signage that said, hey, you know, this is a public place, but, you know, be aware, we're we're making a movie today. And yeah. if you walk by, there's a chance you could be in the movie. And if you have a problem with that, please avoid get, this area or let, yeah. let somebody know or something like that. Um, so, uh, And I, I think they could have gotten away with this. You know, I don't think there's anything inherently, you know, so, you know, it is biometric data, so it is personal. I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with this if customers were given proper warning um, mm-hmm. and, you know, something that said very clearly, not in just a small decal on the entryway door, this is what's happening in the mall. Uh, you know, you can opt out of this by leaving, um, but at least you're aware of it. And if <laughs> right, you're going right. to stay, you're consenting to it. Right. Or, or click here and the mall doors will unlock. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, <laughs> Otherwise stay, you got nothing. Away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I boy, what a what a quaint idea, right? Asking someone's permission before you gather an image of them. What what? Uh, how it's adorable, know. isn't it? I know, so <laughs> antiquated. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, interesting story for sure. Uh, ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed, like a rock. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here on Thursday. 